Welcome to Bread and Poppies, where we discuss why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. Hi there, friends. Welcome to Bread and Poppies. It's been uh, an interesting week. I think it's been a little bit more than a week since the last episode, but um, (laughs) a bunch of things have happened. Um, So for those of you who didn't see this... uh, on Twitter, um, I made Megan McCain really angry this week. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Megan McCain called me out, um, for being, you know, just a mean old Bernie bro. Um, basically she posted something that said, Democrats really going to nominate a 78 year old white socialist who recently had a heart attack. Really? Uh, that was after the New Hampshire primary where he won and all, all I, I mean, I was really polite when I answered. All I said was, yes, please cry about it on national television because I wanted to see that. I said, please, uh, I just, I just want to see her white lady tears. She loves crying on TV. So why not take requests for once? Um, and so she quote tweeted me saying, why are Bernie supporters so nasty on Twitter? Why is this such a thing? No other candidate has such nasty and cruel supporters online. And um, a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of her fans got mad at me, but most of the people just thought it was really funny and continued to dunk on her because she's an incredibly wealthy, privileged white woman who is not actually affected by politics. So this was pretty funny, especially choosing my comment where I, all I said was, uh, go cry about it. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that kind of thing to a regular person. Uh, I do actually believe that online bullying and harassment is a thing for regular people. Um, I, I don't actually think we should do it to people who don't have power, but people who are in power, you can't bully them. I can't bully Megan McCain. That's not a thing. That's not how bullying works. Bullying is a power dynamic and it goes from above to below. I can't sit here in my one bedroom basement apartment and bully a woman who will never ever experience a moment of discomfort outside of Twitter in her entire life. Like that's that's not how it works. Um, so I'm fine with saying those kind of things to people who are wealthy and powerful. I don't think we should say them to just regular people because that's not how you build solidarity. But I will say it to her um, because it's funny and it made me laugh and it made a lot of people laugh. Um, but I also kind of, I, I took the opportunity as as I do um, because in the end I'm not a comedian, I'm an educator. I actually did take this opportunity to explain why I would say something like this to her. So I responded to her saying that if you think that Bernie supporters are meaner than centrists online, you haven't actually seen what happens on here. Because and I, I included some screenshots. There's there's lots of examples of supporters of every other candidate saying horrible things, um, saying misogynistic stuff to uh, women supporters of Bernie, saying racist stuff to supporters of Bernie who are people of color. Uh, it happens all the time. the The reason that uh, that Bernie supporters get called bullies more than other ones is a there are more of us. There's more people who like Bernie. So that's just just a, a volume. If there's, you know, um, if there's a bunch of people who are doing this, there's just going to be more if the candidate has more supporters. The other uh, reason is um, 
because Bernie is pretty unassailable on his policies. He's unassailable on his history. They just don't have a lot to work with to actually um, discredit Bernie himself. And so what what centrists have decided to do is they've decided to go after Bernie supporters because that's that's just easy. You can find supporters from anybody online and you know if if you want to make the try to make the candidate represent uh what those people are saying then you can do that you can do that with any candidate but they have to do it for bernie because they don't actually have anything to say about bernie himself um i would say that the third reason that uh this bernie bro harassment narrative exists um I mean, there's also the the fact that even just the Bernie bro narrative uh, is erasing all the women and uh, people of color who are make up the majority of Bernie supporters. But another reason is probably because Bernie supporters know what the stakes are. Um, people are dying from a lack of insulin in the United States. Kids are being separated from their families at the border and held in cages. Like, this is real-life stuff that's happening. And people are seeing a chance, finally, to maybe take some power back. And, of course, people are getting upset. They're getting emotional. They are they have so much... We all have so much riding on this election. Not that electoral politics is the be-all, end-all of politics, but we, there's so much riding on this that, yeah, people get emotional. They get upset. They say things that maybe sometimes they shouldn't, but I stand by uh, our our ability to finally call out powerful people. It's just that those powerful people have never had to deal with that before. When all they ever did was talk to each other, they could just assume that, you know, the working classes, I don't know, I don't know how they convince themselves that, that they're the magnanimous ones and the working classes just idolize them and want to be like them but now that they're actually having to listen to us tell them to fuck off they're getting very upset uh so she can just go do that because politics is a game for rich white women like her nothing will affect her nothing will affect those people no matter who is in power it's going to be a long time before rich people feel any kind of sting but if bernie gets in power we might actually be able to take some of the money back that's been stolen by these rich capitalists and put it back into the the public good and so that's really the only threat to them uh and so yeah we're we're basically done being tone policed and uh i don't give a shit about megan mccain's feelings because she's upholding the structures that are are crushing the rest of us underfoot um and this is yeah what i told her is that she should go get a spa treatment and ignore the homeless people that she'll walk by on the way there and she can keep pretending politics are all just a difference of opinion and it's all you know we're we're all just talking and we all mean well and whatever no this is about power it's about resources it's about material well-being it's about life and death so yeah megan mccain can fuck off but that was really funny that i managed to irritate her enough and it's funny because i actually i actually did like for a second I felt kind of bad because personally I don't actually like making anybody feel bad um I know that people say that oh you know if she's she's rich and shitty she's a republican she everything she does is is bad for the world I agree with all that but I still don't think that it's productive to just make people feel bad because I don't think that bad feelings are productive so I don't it's not that I revel in the fact that she is upset by what people are saying um, it's more that I feel like if 
if talking back to her um, like this emboldens other people to to realize that we don't have to take shit from rich, powerful people, then it's a, a net good. But it was an interesting thing for me to kind of work through some of my emotions um, briefly, very briefly, mostly. I just thought it was really funny um, on, you know, whether or not it was a good thing to, to make her feel bad. Um, but I, I did actually get a lot of supportive messages from people who were thanking me for making her feel bad. So, you know what, I would rather um, inject some delight into the day of people who, you know, my fellow, fellow working class people than worry about her feelings. So, yeah, that happened. And then the second thing that happened this week... Um, I mean, I think a lot of people who know me on Twitter know that this was a particularly crazy couple of weeks. Um, and I gained, I think, something like 6,000 followers in the last two weeks, which is like a third of what I had before. Um, and a, a lot of it was because of the Meghan McCain thing. A lot of it was because of, um, this libertarian MDMA tweet that I, I made. But also, um, this other thing that happened... Uh, which was a surprise, and it's a really weird thing that happened. Um, so Regina Marston, I don't know if that name sounds familiar to any of you who are anyone but the, the extremely online leftists, but she is a congressional, she's a, a candidate, a Democratic candidate for the 42nd Congressional District in California. And she, okay, I, I don't want this episode to just be rehashing Twitter drama. So you can just uh, look up Regina Marston and see what happened. I won't go into the, the huge details, but basically um, she responded to a uh, Rashida Tlaib tweet uh, and was pretty rude. And then I noticed that she was, she's a candidate who was endorsed by the AFL-CIO and so all I responded to her was, damn, AFL-CIO just endorsing anybody these days. And she, her response to me was to say that, yeah, and they don't endorse losers with beards and dreadlocks, which if you don't see how that's racist, I will explain it briefly. Um, <laughs> dreadlocks are a, a culturally specific hairstyle generally to... Black people, I'm not going to go into the history of it because I'm going to get it wrong, but um, it's it's basically a dog whistle to talk about dreadlocks in the negative because everybody knows that you're talking about black people. And it, it went further than that. Um, it, it, she also uh, called uh, a, a black gay socialist um, who I'm a big fan of on Twitter. She called him boy in her response to him. Anyways, blah, blah, blah. She went off. She started messaging a bunch. I know she, like, personally messaged somebody that I know and, uh, called him racist against her because she's a white woman. Uh, I don't know. She really did seem to kind of have some, some issues, uh, I'm not going to diagnose anything or, you know, whatever, but there's something is not quite right with Regina Marston, but that doesn't excuse the racism uh, and just being a complete dickhead to everybody because she completely lost it. And the result of that was that uh, the AFL-CIO has retracted their endorsement of her. There's an article that was posted up 
um, that, that quoted me and quoted a few people who, uh, had, had talked to her and, um, yeah, they rescinded their, uh, endorsement. The California Labor Federation, uh, has said that racist or discriminatory statements go against our core values as a movement and won't be tolerated. So I know that Twitter, you know, isn't real life or whatever, um, it's, it's a big part of my life at the moment just because I'm working from home and, uh, doing childcare and sit on the couch breastfeeding a lot. This is often what I'm doing when I'm taking down these jackasses on Twitter is just like sitting with a baby on my boob and my phone in my other hand, um, which is amazing that I could have that kind of power to help take down the candidacy of a racist lady in California. But, um, clearly Twitter is part of real life. There's a, a feedback loop um, that happens, and this is a real thing that happened. And and once again, you know, it gets back to the theme of we are finally able to call out powerful people, and they are losing their shit because of it, because they're not used to it. So I say we should keep it up. Try to be nice to people who have two or three hundred followers, just regular people. As much as um, it's difficult to kind of, like, swallow your anger at, you know, K-Hive people and whoever is being a dick to you online, um, I, I just think that it's building solidarity with working class people is not going to be easy. A lot of them um, really swallow the, the neoliberal hegemonic sort of worldview of um you know all of the the propaganda that's gone that that's that's put forward uh, against bernie people believe that not everybody has the same exposure to to leftist uh a leftist analysis of the world you know myself and everybody else who's kind of on the left in uh, academia and the media we're trying to educate people but not everybody has had that education yet so i don't really fault people for not uh being there yet we have to meet people where they're at and nobody ever said this was going to be easy talking to people about this stuff it's not easy and it's the, the hardest part is swallowing your emotions when they say something that's problematic or racist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever it doesn't mean that you have to engage with people who are doing those things but um it it does mean that the most productive response is usually to educate and not just to call somebody a fuckface and whatever. Um, I know that not everybody agrees with me on this, uh, and I know that it's it's hard. It's really hard to, to meet people with empathy when you just want to dunk on them and move on. Um, and so I don't really, like, fault anybody uh, for doing that, but I do think that if we can try to meet people with empathy um, and with kindness and at least, you know, not engage, like, just ignore, don't engage with people who are being a jerk to you, but um, if somebody is like, well, I don't know, like Jeff Bezos just gave away ten million dollars, um, don't don't if if they really do seem like they're like they believe that like they believe that Jeff Bezos is a good person, um, and they're not directly insulting you, the best thing is to educate them um, instead of just calling a bootlicker calling them a bootlicker and moving on. Um, I know this makes me sound like a hypocrite because I love calling people bootlickers, but uh, it, 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 there's a there's a particular sense of is this person talking in good faith? Do they need to be educated? And could me educating them um, more? It's it's more than just talking to the person directly because they're probably not going to 
listen to you, but anybody else who's reading this exchange, if you're just automatically going into insult mode, they're going to see that and think, well, that's, you know, it, it doesn't make us as leftists come off looking good when all we do is insult instead of trying to build the coalition and bring people in. Anyways, none of this matters if what you're doing is out, uh, going out and canvassing. If you're canvassing, I give you full, uh, the full right to blow off steam on Twitter because, uh, canvassing, making phone calls, actually texting for Bernie, that people, that stuff means so much more. Um, and so if what you need to do is go and blow off steam on Twitter, then like fine. But if all you do, uh, is go on Twitter and, you know, add to the, the vitriol and, and, and the anger that circles around on there, it's not the most productive thing that you can do, um, with your time. So power to the people who are actually volunteering and donating and canvassing and all that kind of thing. But for those of us who just live online because uh, either we can't canvass because we can't make it there or we're Canadian or whatever, um, the least we can do is try to be, you know, the voice of empathy and reason online. Um, and yes, once again, I am aware of me not always following this advice either. So yeah, so I think next I'm going to answer some questions that I got about drugs. Stay with me. So I'm going to answer some questions. I get a lot of questions via DM on uh, Twitter and sometimes via email and comments on my blog. And honestly, I feel bad that it's always more than I can keep up with. Um, if you've messaged me, thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it. I wish we could like hang out and like do a bunch of mushrooms together and spend a whole day together. That's what I genuinely wish for like every person who reaches out to me. I love people. I love getting to know people. I love hearing their stories. I love engaging with their questions. Um, but it's just not feasible when I basically have two full-time jobs. I'm doing a PhD and I'm a parent. So, um, it makes me sad that I can't answer everybody. But, um, what I've decided to at least do is once in a while, take some questions and answer them here on the podcast, because that way, uh, hopefully, you know, other people can learn from the answers. And I got some interesting ones. So I'm just, there's four questions I'm going to, I'm going to address today and I'll try to keep it more or less brief because I want to keep this podcast not super long. Um, so a person, so this was a really interesting question and I think it's an important one because I think that t talking through bad psychedelics experiences are really important so that we can get people to um, have better experiences but also appreciate what the bad ones can do for us. So this person, um, uh, and uh, a, a warning here of um, just sort of thoughts of self-harm. Um, this person asked, or she said, I've tripped on acid three times and two out of the three were horrible experiences. Those two times I felt like a bad person and the last time I did it I felt so bad I almost harmed myself. Is that because when I was tripping I realized I was being a bad person slash friend slash daughter etc and didn't have empathy till I tripped? I've never really understood psychedelics and just did them at parties or random times, and now after all those bad experiences, I'm terrified of them. Years later, I still get feelings like the last time I tripped, like I'm an awful human being. So, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry you have that experience. Uh, I know that not everybody had, like, most people's experiences with psychedelics are good, but, but they're not always. And I, I do think the most important thing um, 
to address here is understanding the concept of a bad person. We need to understand the difference between being a bad person and having done maybe some shitty things in your life. I'm not saying that that you have, but uh, thinking that you're a bad person is not a productive feeling. And it's the same way that uh, I do find the term racist or sexist to be not as useful as talking about people's behavior, specifically doing racist things or sexist things. Um, and, you know, engaging in bad behavior. Because what happens when you think that you're just a bad person, it's, I mean, it's almost definitely not true. Um, unless the person that uh, sent me this message is like, I don't know, Sheryl Sandberg or some other incredibly rich and wealthy person, I can almost guarantee you that you're not a, a bad person. And... The idea, but the, the problem of thinking that you're a bad person is what that does is it makes you feel like it's, it's fatalistic. It makes you feel like there's nothing you can do. You're just, it's, it's just going to create a cycle of, of shame where you think you're a bad, you're just bad. And there's nothing that you can do about that. But what psychedelics do sometimes is they can open us up to our own behaviors that harm people around us. And once again, I'm not saying that this is the case for this person. You might just have really low self-esteem because of experiences in your past or or whatever. You might not have harmed anybody and are just, you know, feeling bad for no reason. But I do think it's important that we open ourselves up to the idea that sometimes psychedelics can can teach us lessons that are really difficult to hear. And sometimes it's about behaviors that we have, you know, that we've, we've done that are, that are harmful, you know, um, it's, it's less productive to think, oh, am I a bad daughter than to think, what could I do to be a better daughter or, or a better friend, um, or a better person? Are there, have I hurt people? Are there things that I've done or am doing with my behavior that are harming the people around me? Um, and for most of us, honestly, we, the, the answer is, yeah, there's some things that we're probably doing that aren't great because we're humans and we live in a shitty capitalist society and it's hard to be a good person when our entire, like our entire society is constructed around competition and hierarchy. So we fall into that. Um, and so when you're living this alienated, competitive, hierarchical life, um, sometimes you're not going to treat people well. Uh, if you've ever been in material need, you know, people can do things that they don't want to do uh, when their their needs aren't getting met because you have to. You know, my our car, when we moved to Vancouver three years ago, uh, our first week in Vancouver, we had all of our stuff in our car. And we were parked outside of a thrift shop and um, my car, our car was broken into and somebody chased the guy away so they didn't steal anything, but they could have taken everything. We, everything that we owned was in that car. And I don't really blame the person that broke into the car because you don't break into a car because you think it's fine. You do it because you need the money. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't think that the person who broke into our car was a bad person, even though that was a bad thing to do. I 
am more inclined to blame the societal structures that led this person to be so desperate that they felt they needed to break into a car. So the, the, the fact remains that psychedelic experiences, when they're difficult, sometimes they're, they're telling us something. It might just be that, uh, you know, I feel like I tend to criticize my partner too much. Uh, you know, when I'm in a bad mood, I take it out on my partner or uh, I never call my mom because I, I don't know, I just talking to her is annoying sometimes. She's, she's a Trump supporter and it's whatever, but I should call her. It's doing psychedelics. And I especially find this with, um, uh, with mushrooms, uh, personally of, of all of the psychedelics. Yeah, it can, it can sometimes be difficult and painful to look at our own behavior. Um, it can be difficult and, and painful to even look at the behavior of other people towards you and realize, holy shit, this person has been treating me badly. Um, a lot of this stuff can be hard. Uh, psychedelics are a tool. And, you know, just like any kind of form of therapy, it can be difficult. But the, the point is to go into it with an open mindset. Um, and this is really the thing that's kind of too late for this, this person in particular, um, is that, but it's a reminder that when you go into a psychedelic experience, you have to be open to whatever it's going to give you. If you're well prepared and you do it with the right set and setting, which is, you know, you go in with the right mindset, why you're doing it and, um, the right setting. So you're with the right people, you are somewhere safe, somewhere you feel comfortable. Um, generally speaking, you're not going to have a negative experience, but if parts of the experience are uncomfortable, at least you'll be prepared for them and you'll know that what's happening is you're learning something. Now, this person um, probably, you know, did acid, you know, it sounds like she did it at parties and things like that. Um, that's that's not bad. It's, that's totally fine uh, because oftentimes what you can do is just do a psychedelic at a party and you don't think about any of this stuff and you just have a great time. But um, some people have these negative experiences. So I do want to say that you shouldn't be terrified of psychedelics. Um, but if you're if you are terrified of them, don't do them. <laughs> um, do them when you're at least a little nervous, but curious and, and open and ready for them. But I can assure you, you're not an awful human being. It, the psychedelics may have given you some lessons that you weren't totally prepared for. But there's also completely the possibility that it, you know, you're, you haven't really done anything wrong and you just had a negative experience because maybe there was bad vibes at that party and you got paranoid and you were young and didn't kind of understand those feelings. And, you know, maybe there's, um, different anxieties that you're, that you're working with. So I would say always treat whatever experience you have on psychedelics as a lesson. And maybe this is, this lesson is that you have some anxieties that, uh, would be good to go to therapy and get some counseling and, and work through, but you're not a bad person. You're not an awful human being. There may be some things that you need to work on, but the key thing is that that doesn't even just, if you've done some things or, or you have some negative thoughts to, to work through, None of that makes you bad. It just makes you a normal, regular person that um, is just like any other person. So I, I don't want anyone to feel bad, but this is something I'm constantly working through too, is that negative feelings are not always a bad thing. And sometimes they're just necessary for us to deal with the things that we need to deal with.
So I just want to tell you, person who messaged me, I'm I'm releasing you of any, you know, uh, obligation to tell yourself that you're a bad person. You're not. You you care enough to reach out. Um, I just hope that uh, you're able to to turn these experiences into something positive for you. So question two, this one should be a bit shorter. This is from a professor, an old punk in Pittsburgh. And they say, I was curious if you knew of any reliable info about ways to counteract the potentially negative effects of MDMA. I'm a fan of psychedelics and MDMA, but I know that the latter isn't super good for the old serotonin levels. So I've tried to read up on potentially useful ways to counteract MDMA use, aside from just not doing it very often, which is my solution. But you know how difficult it can be to find reliable information about drugs that's not either evidence-free suggestions or hyper-specific findings in a scientific journal. So yeah, this is this is a tricky one. And the problem is that, yeah, there's there's not enough research. MDMA is uh, is a drug you have to be more careful about than uh, other, well, I say other psychedelics as if MDMA is a psychedelic. It's kind of half in the psychedelic category and half not, depending on who you ask. Um, but, you know, so LSD, psilocybin, traditional psychedelics like that, they don't have, uh, as far as we know um, in science, there's no real uh, negative long-term physical side effects or consequences from, from their use. But MDMA is uh, somewhat neurotoxic. Um, the studies are kind of complicated and, and it doesn't, yeah, we don't really have enough information to know uh, how bad MDMA is for the brain, but we definitely know that uh, using it too much is not good for the brain. Uh, I did a, I wrote a little thread recently about uh, the MDMA spacing is really the best um, approach. So using MDMA every week is not good. The kind of bare minimum best practice is uh, to leave three months in between because it takes a long time for your serotonin levels to get back up to normal after they are, you know, get all wonky on MDMA. And, but the ideally really don't want to use MDMA more than once or twice a year. I know this sucks to hear because when you do MDMA, you feel like it's just, you just want to do it all the time. And it's what a lot of people end up doing, but uh, you shouldn't um, unfortunately do it that often. This is why uh, a good harm reduction strategy is, um, diversify, <laughs> diversify your drug portfolio, use different drugs because then you're not getting uh, hit in the same uh, areas of your brain all the time. But um, yeah, where, where you can use uh, psilocybin, mushrooms, and LSD once every couple weeks, MDMA, you don't want to do that. So anyways, this, this person already knows that. Um, and they're wanting to have ways to counteract uh, the negative effects that MDMA can have on the brain. So there's not a lot of really solid evidence uh, for the various supplements that people suggest. So if you want, you can go to uh, Roll, I think it's called rollsafe.org or look for Rollsafe. Uh, there's a, a variety of, of supplements that people recommend. Um, a lot of people anecdotally swear by using 4-HTP in the week after MDMA. Don't use it on the same night. But the week after, if you take it um, in in the nighttime or once a day for, for seven days or something like that, 
Um, I don't think there's any evidence, but there's a lot of anecdotal reports of people saying that that um, lessens the, you know, the Tuesday blues, the big crash that you can have after MDMA, which uh, incidentally is why I don't do MDMA anymore. Um, because it's, it's just the, the crash isn't worth it. Um, for me, as much as I love what it has done for me in the past, but, um, yeah, in terms of the supplementation, there's not a ton of evidence, but I do strongly believe that even when there's not scientific evidence for these things, if there's overwhelming anecdotal evidence, it certainly doesn't hurt, um, to, to try doing these things. All drug users can really do is experiment and, and talk to each other and build up these sort of like, you know, this, this sort of folklore and folk medicine around um, harm reduction because that's all we can do under prohibition. But I do think that uh, the supplements have helped a lot of people. A lot of people swear by them. So you can check out those supplements. Basically, I'm going to make four quick recommendations to reduce the neurotoxicity from MDMA. This comes from a really good article by Dancefe called Is MDMA Neurotoxic? I recommend reading it. And uh, the main recommendations are to uh, only take one dose at a time. Don't, don't redose. It can be tempting to redose, but uh, the more you take, the greater the risk is. A lot of people will take uh, GHB uh, on the come down of MDMA because that allows you to kind of keep the party going, keep the good feelings going. Um, but it's uh, um, less neurotoxic and uh, isn't compounding that MDMA. Obviously, be extremely careful if you're going to take GHB. I have a very detailed blog post written about how to take GHB that you can find by Googling. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a good idea to redose on M. Uh, number two is don't mix MDMA with other stimulants like amphetamines that is in going to increase uh, the risk of overheating, going to increase the load on your liver uh, and also probably increase the load on your heart. Be aware of overheating risks is number three. Um, it's uh, a lot of the neurotoxicity from MDMA is theorized, well not a lot of it, but some of it is theorized to come from overheating. So if you're taking it at a rave, make sure you're properly hydrated, drink lots of water, stay, try to stay cool. Um, that might actually help. And also taking the, the fourth is taking antioxidants like vitamin C and vitamin E. Um, I'm going to read directly from this article because MDMA and neurotox neurotoxicity ultimately happens through oxidation. Antioxidants may be able to provide some additional safety margin. We don't really know exactly how all of these things work, but it certainly can't hurt to take some vitamin C and vitamin E when you're doing MDMA. But in the end, there's not a ton you can do, especially in terms of um, prolonging the amount of times that you can do MDMA. I've talked about this before too, that you really only have a set amount of times in your life that you can kind of do them. And as far as I know, there's no real way to um, increase the number. There's really just either you do it all at once and then MDMA stops working for you, or you can spread it out and keep enjoying MDMA for the rest of your life. I wish I had more answers. And when we legalize all of these things, we're going to pour a ton of research money into it. And we're going to figure out how to make MDMA that doesn't fry your brain. Question number three, this person saw my recent tweet about sh shroom legalization 
And they're asking, do you think psychedelics are in fact marketable in the way that weed and alcohol are and have been? With psychedelics, the user must be willing to engage in a revelatory internal experience, which may not be viable to subsume into the typical social dynamics of capitalist consumption. If there's a way for a shrooms market to be profitable, how do you think that would come about? And how do you think it can be stopped? So this is a really interesting and complicated question. Um, I do think that it's totally possible to market shrooms under capitalism because it's possible to market anything under capitalism. You can market completely useless shit under capitalism and people will buy it if you manufacture a desire, um, let alone something like psilocybin mushrooms, which are awesome and fun and helpful and um, have inherent uh, value to people. But what's going to happen, and I'm already kind of seeing it happen, happening is, yeah, they're going to they're going to be sold. They're going to be sold in and are already in 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 head shops and in cannabis stores in in lots of places. Um, I don't think that that's a responsible way of selling them, just just selling them like that to to people, whoever kind of wants to buy it over the counter, because these are really powerful tools. It's like, you know, selling a, a, a gun to somebody without training. But I also don't think, I, I think we need to find kind of a, a, a balance between um, regulation and um, without, you know, just prohibiting people. Basically, I think that education needs to be um, at the forefront and that's possible under capitalism. I know that a lot of, there's a lot of um, psychedelic therapy places that are popping up and they, they mean well, they're, they're taking people's money, they're for profit but they are trying to make it a, a, a positive experience for people. So I don't super have a problem with that other than the fact that it's definitely uh, middle class to upper class white people who are putting these things together. They have the capital to, to start these things, um, which obviously has a lot of uh, implications for, for racial justice when they're not the people who have been going to prison for psychedelics, um, and for selling drugs for a long time. So yeah, I think that I don't know how to, how to stop, um, capital from capitalizing on psychedelics. I think it's, if we go at it in, in a kind of harm reduction, uh, approach, there's a lot of people, um, who are, who are working on, on social justice in the cannabis markets, um, and making sure that the right people have access to those markets. I think that uh, drug dealers should have primary access to selling legal psychedelics because they're the ones who have been providing psychedelics to people. They're the ones who have been uh, educating people, the people who buy it from them about it. They've been the, the primary, uh, you know, locus of, of education for people who use psychedelics. Usually you're, you're talking to the person that you're buying it from uh, about it. So if we can allow those people to have access to the legal market and, uh, you know, make it so that these things are sold in, in co-ops and everything, I think we can imagine a world where psychedelics are um, sold ethically and produced ethically. But, um, yeah, I, that's, that's going to be a complicated question. And I would say that, uh, it's, it's worth exploring, but only in a way that, that centers justice for the people that, who have been harmed by the war on drugs. So 
So I think I'm actually going to end it here. There is one more question from Marcel Rambo uh, about whether or not we can end the war on drugs without completely ending the systems of global capitalism that it, it exemplifies. I think that's a great question, but I'm going to rant for too long when I answer that question. So I'm going to have to save it for the next episode. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening. Thank you for all the people who shared uh, messages of support this week during all the, the craziness and um, questions and, and comments in their own histories. I do want to say that people often messages message me with their stories about their relationship to drugs and their, their history to drugs history with drugs and they often apologize when they do so because they think that they're boring me and I just want to set the record straight I find nothing more interesting than hearing people's personal stories especially about drugs that's literally what my whole research project is based on I'm an anthropologist and the reason I'm an anthropologist as corny as it sound is, sounds is because I love people I love hearing your stories um, I find human beings really fascinating and uh, our relationships to, to drugs is a very personal one and everybody has one. This is the thing that most people who just use coffee and alcohol or whatever, they don't even realize that they have a very complex and personal relationship to drugs. Everybody does. And I find everybody's relationship to drugs very interesting because it's um, very intimately tied in with our life and our, our history and our relationships with people around us and our cultures. So, yeah, I just want to say that please send away, um, share your stories with me. I find them really interesting. Feel free to use uh, Proton Mail if you feel safer. That's an encrypted mail um, service. You can uh, email me at um, hillaryagro at gmail.com if you feel safer. Uh, I, I prefer getting uh, these things via Twitter DM just because I don't like checking my email and I just... I, I, I'm much less likely to even get back to you on there, but I will still read it. Um, but, and also because I, I do generally encourage people to use more secure methods of communication when you're talking about something illegal, um, to protect yourself. You can stay fully anonymous, uh, if you want, if you use ProtonMail or any other service like that, um, or a burner, a, a burner, um, Twitter account, just give me your age, gender, if any, and uh, your general location. So I have some context that would be helpful. But if not, you know, it's whatever. Your, your story alone is fine. Uh, and if you want to message me from your regular account too, that's also totally fine. I just want to encourage people to stay safe and don't do anything that's outside of your comfort zone. Um, and, you know, you could, for example, uh, if, you email, if you message me from your regular account, you can delete the message on your end after sending it. So that way... You know, at least it's not kind of on in your phone or in your history. So that's it for Bread and Poppies. Thanks for listening. I hope that you're having a great week. I hope that you're surviving this capitalist hellscape that we all live in. The only way to really do it is through solidarity. So I hope that you're finding ways to have fun with your friends and family and, you know, enjoy being a human even though it's really hard these days thanks again to all the people who are canvassing and donating and calling and texting for bernie you guys are all heroes we are going to win eventually even if bernie doesn't win we're going to win the fight against capitalism i know it seems super bleak but i swear to god we're gonna fucking win if it kills us all which i mean looking at climate change it might but that's okay because we're gonna get high and have fun as we fight Love you all. See you next week.